This was one of the closest races in 2022. She won by 546 votes against a Democrat named Adam Frisch. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, July 26th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about one of the most controversial members of the House Republican Caucus, Lauren Boebert. As Abby explains, Boebert's brand is as right-wing as it gets. So how does she survive re-election in what's suddenly become a swing district in her home state of Colorado? And I ask Abby what Democrats in Congress might one day become presidential contenders as the party searches for a younger and more diverse bench of candidates. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk about one of the most polarizing, flamboyant, controversial, pick your adjective, members of Congress, Lauren Boebert from Colorado. Abby, thanks for joining me. It's good to be here. So, Abby... It's interesting. I think a lot of people listening might have heard uh, the gossip about the uh, falling out between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Perhaps. Perhaps. But like, if you think about the most MAGA, Freedom Caucus-y, right-wing members of the House, usually they're from safe districts where you can be a lightning rod and go home and all you have to do is win your primary and you'll be fine. Marjorie Taylor Greene comes from such a district in Georgia. What's interesting about Lauren Boebert in Colorado's third, which is sort of like outer Denver suburbs, 
is that she's from a really competitive district. It kind of came out of nowhere in the last cycle to be competitive, but it feels competitive this cycle. You compared her yesterday in, in a piece for Puck, uh, the Capitol Hill Cafeteria Report, which goes out as part of the powers that be email. Everybody should be reading that. You compared her to Michelle Bachman, who ran for president in 2012. as She was a you know right-wing congresswoman from Minnesota. Where, where is the comparison? What it reminded me of, so Bachman was up for re-election in 2014 and 2012, and I believe she ended up retiring in 2014 before her race took full shape. And this was in the sort of early days of online fundraising, comparatively speaking. And I was at roll call and we were just sort of befuddled with the dynamics of that race because Bachman was just as good at raising money for her Democratic opponent than for her own campaign. And so you see that happening with Lauren Boebert as well. And I'd also point to the Texas Senate race with Ted Cruz. This was one of the closest races in 2022. She won by 546 votes against a Democrat named Adam Frisch. I, I remember 10 years ago, the DCCC maybe pointing me to a candidate or two to pay attention to in this district, mm-hmm. but they generally backed off and then they just gave up altogether. Mm-hmm. And she defeated an incumbent and she has come to Congress and she's been extremely, extremely flamboyant. So I think under n- normal circumstances, this is not a competitive district, although I will caveat, we've been through redistricting. So... That's what drew me in was I was curious and his Twitter account is on my feed whenever I log in sponsored uh, trying to raise money. So this is very much an online war, but he outraised her 2.6 million to her $818,000. So this was pretty significant. And this is going to be a Democrat who probably is able to spend a ton of money that that takes pressure off of the rest of the party, the DCCC, the House campaign Democratic arm. So I think there's a very interesting race to watch forming in Colorado. I also think that Frisch has this other advantage coming off the last cycle, which is that the house was much closer than we thought. And that race went into a recount. And so you had a lot of Democrats around the country rooting for Frisch, supporting him, following him on social media, signing up for his lists. So not only was he challenging this infamous Republican that every Democrat hates a lot, he had this like window of time after election day to sort of like grow his following too. And that makes him even more of a threat. I think he's going to be able to raise a ton of money nationally, not just in Colorado. Absolutely. And there was a point where we thought that race could determine the gavel. And so it did take outsized notoriety uh, in the late fall. And so I think this has been an interesting race. And one other thing that I pointed out was, and this sort of fits, even though they don't get along with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but these two women are becoming the establishment. Marjorie Taylor Greene last this past quarter gave $100,000 to the NRCC, which is the House GOP cam- mm. campaign committee, which will be used indirectly to on ad money all over the country. And she gave to a lot of vulnerable Republicans who were eager to accept her checks. And Boebert is on the reverse of that. You can go through her, her campaign reports and see almost every major person in House GOP leadership giving to her. Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, Michael McCall, chairman of Foreign uh, Affairs Committee. And so in these sorts of circumstances and the nuts and bolts of winning districts all over the country to hold on to the majority, we're not seeing the same divide that we are seeing play out on votes and other kinds of policy issues. That's so interesting. And is she, are people giving money to her because she's a star on the right? Like she can come to that person's district and campaign for them, you know, if she's not too busy in her own district with a tough race. And so they want to be on her good side because she has a kind of 
attentional power that like a normal member of Congress in the Republican Party might not? She had a lot of donations, and I don't have the list in front of me, from a lot of classmates, younger members. So mm. I, I think this is a situation where it's her friends. Mm. But when it comes to the leadership, I read into it cold-blooded politics. They want the seat to hold on to the majority. And then also, if you are in leadership, you want to cultivate very good relationships with every single rank-and-file member. And when they're in need, that's the best way to do it and mm. to ingratiate yourself for your next leadership race, whenever that is. Mm. So that is what I read into it more than um, anything else. All right, Abby, I want to take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to ask you about maybe some younger leaders in the Democratic Party that we might be looking to nationally in a few years. up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the powers that be, everybody. Last time Abby was on the podcast, we talked about the Texas Senate race. And you, Abby, made the smart point that Democrats around the country and in Texas are frustrated that you should have a bench of like young, diverse candidates in a state like Texas and Florida. And at the state house level, Democrats have just been eviscerated. And so there's not really an up and coming generation of like young, diverse leaders in those two huge states. But it made me think, because I had another conversation with some Democrats last week about this, who, you know, work for Obama, work for Biden, don't dislike any of the Democrats looking at maybe running in 2028, but aren't also enthused by any of them. Newsom, Kamala, Buttigieg, I don't know, there, there just doesn't seem to be like an electric figure out there in the Democratic Party who could be president one day. Is there anyone in Congress that I'm not thinking of? Three people came to mind, maybe four. The first and foremost is AOC. She is not eligible to run. I just checked before we went on air. She's 33 years old, but she has an influence that is staggering. And so I think, you know, the moment she turns 35, it's going to be a source of discussion, just inevitably. The other two who came to mind, one is running for Senate and uh, Michigan, Alyssa Slotkin, who's a congresswoman. Mm. Um, and she is part of the class of 2018, which is, I think, what you need to look at when you're looking at young Democratic talent. And it's a class that hasn't quite matured. We saw a lot of 2012-ish people run for president in 2020. So mm. these people, these House members in particular, are going to start running statewide, and they already are in this cycle. Slotkin has national security credentials. She's won in a tough district. 
she's worked at the Pentagon, the CIA, and she is a fierce campa- campaigner. When she goes on television and makes a point, she makes it better than a lot of sitting senators. And she's been going on CNN on weeknights, which I think is interesting. Hmm. The other one is also t- class of 2018, Abigail Spanberger, Congresswoman from Virginia. And she's very similar to Slocken. They are both perceived to be in the moderate wing of the party. Spanberger has been sort of someone insiders have been watching since the moment she came to Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, She's very serious, but she also sort of has a fun side to her. And what I think struck me about her was based on her district, it's in the Eastern time zone. And that was the district on, it goes back to how you pointed back to the midterms uh, with Adam Frisch. Mm -hmm. Every political analyst who knew the House of Representatives or didn't know knew to look and see how Abigail Spanberger was doing. She was in a tough district and how she did was going to say how going to forecast how the rest of the map went. So everybody in American politics was talking about Abigail Spanberger while they were waiting for the polls to close. Mm. So it, it just shot up her name ID in the political class that I thought in a very interesting way. I also keep an eye on Colin Allred in Texas. I don't think it's likely he wins the Senate race at this point, but let's see. And what I'd also just point out is there may be some really talented people sitting out there in plain sight who we aren't even paying attention to. No one knew who Beto O'Rourke was uh, before 2015, and Mm -hmm. then he went supernova. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's a huge barrel teeming with talent. I don't know if being in the Congress is a launching pad like it used to be to mm-hmm. run for uh, the presidency. And you also accumulate a voting record, which is an issue that you have to deal with both in your primary, if you are not for Medicare for all or anything like that, and then in the general election. So I don't think it's a huge well of talent, but I, I say give it time. And you know, assuming the 24 primary goes the way we think it will, 2028 is a really long time away. Totally. I'm really intrigued that you said Spanberger's name because I grew up in Virginia's 7th District and that was Eric Cantor's old seat. It's since been redistricted and she's had to move around a little bit. But the fact that she won that district in 2018 by just plowing right into the exurbs around Richmond was pretty incredible to me. And I also covered Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey that cycle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned Slotkin, like this, like, mom slash military mom, moderate Democrat type is one roadmap for the future. I think that would be successful. And the other is moderate black or brown men. Uh, Mm -hmm. And like those two feel like how Democrats can like put together a coalition, unless someone like AOC can bend the Democratic Party in her direction, that might take a long time. But it's like that, that kind of like younger than Biden, but the same kind of sort of brand of politics. I totally agree that those four feel like the ones to watch. Well, and I think also I put Slocken and Spanberger in a category of we could see them in the cabinet. We yep. could see them running the CIA, either of those things. But they're also, when you talked about Mikey Sherrill, they're part of a clique in Congress that are the national security Democrats from 2018 who'd either served in the military uh-huh. or in intelligence. And Six or seven of them were the, so one thing I'll just backtrack, a lot of Democrats in tough districts who I've observed over the years are very nervous types. They're always scared of saying the wrong thing. Not, this is not just Democrats. It's all members scared of saying the wrong thing, getting into trouble. And this group is a tough group and they 
put out this op-ed that basically Pelosi had been holding back the impeachment wave after the whistleblower and the CIA. And this group said, we're ready to go. And they were effectively the ones who were going to pay the price if it backfired politically. And Mm -hmm. so these are pretty intense people. Yeah, no. And I remember also after 2020 election when Biden won, but frontline Democrats didn't do very well. And, you know, they almost lost control of the House. And Spanberger got on that conference call with House Democrats, like right for the election and just laid into AOC and the squad and like just blamed them for being chum for Republican attack ads, saying Democrats are soft on crime. Democrats are socialists. I don't want to ever hear the word socialism around our party ever again. It's very clear Spanberger has a clear point of view and isn't afraid to share it. Well, and it did rile up the left. I mean, I still hear about it. So um, and not just folks our listeners have probably heard of. There are some more rank and file members who were not pleased with those that sentiment. So but just generally speaking, this is just a pretty united Democratic Party in the House for right now. Mm -hmm. All right, Abby, thank you so much for your insight. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.